is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah this morning to chapter 2, please. Years ago, as a church, we adopted a value statement. We don't bring it out very often. But one of the things that we said we value as a church is uh, believing the Bible and being committed uh, to its instruction. In that same statement on values, we also said when it came to teaching that we valued teaching that was understandable, that was relevant and applicational. So you put those two things together, we value teaching the Bible in such a way that we understand it in its context, we understand its relevance for today, and we also understand how it applies um, in our lives. Now, as a Bible teacher for all these years, that's, that's what I've tried to do. I've tried to be that kind of Bible teacher. And uh, last week we began studying probably the greatest Old Testament prophet, the prophet of Isaiah. He's so great, one of our church family named one of their sons after Isaiah. I thought that's pretty cool. Uh, Isaiah's book of prophecy is very long, very long, I think 66 chapters, and it's very repetitive. Over the range of the four kings that are mentioned in verse 1, Isaiah basically is seeking to call the people to repentance, and so he's saying the same thing over and over and over again, and um, he's trying to get them to repent and turn back to God. You remember last week, if you were here in chapter 1, that he says, it's not too late. You can repent. Come, let's reason together. God will wash you guys white as snow. Though you be crimson red, he'll wash you white as snow. So this morning, I feel the pressure to make Isaiah's words relevant for us in spite of the fact that he was preaching to a different group of people uh, in a totally different context and more than three millennia ago. How does what he had to say to them, you know, apply to us or have anything to do with us? And that's a really good question. So I have three goals, three goals in this study, if I could. I, I hope to help us understand the passages in their context And then number two, I I think I can draw some application out for us today. Uh, Isaiah was directing his comments to the people of God, so therefore we are the people of God. There ought to be some application for us. But I have a third goal, and that is that I don't want to be preaching the same message over and over again week after week because really throughout all the first 39 chapters of Isaiah anyway, it's pretty much the same message over and over and over again. I don't want to come in here and do that every week. So I, I say all that simply to ask for patience, but also to ask you to pray for me that by the Spirit's help, I would come and have something to share with us each week that, that really isn't just the same message uh, boxed in a, different, in a different way. So with all that as a, as a backdrop to beginning, we're at chapter 2. And we're, we're not going to go verse by verse. We're going to look at chapters 2 through 5 this morning. And I'm going to look at them thematically. And what I mean by that is there seems to be two themes in chapters 2 through 5. Really the same two themes that we'll find out throughout the book of Isaiah. But there's two themes. And they, they go like this. Be, as we begin chapter 2, there's one theme. And then we go to a second theme. And then we go back to theme 1. And then we 
come back to theme two. So it's going to be theme one, theme two, theme one, theme two in chapters two through uh, five, with chapter five being almost self-contained a parable or a poem that Isaiah wrote, which is, is pretty interesting, and we'll look at that in just a moment. So let's dive in, and let's look at the first theme. The first theme is this, God will judge. Let's give you some backdrop or some context for this passage. God has called a man by the name of Abraham years earlier. And he said, Abraham, you're a faithful man. I am going to make out of you a nation, a people. And these, these people, your people, this nation, it's going to be a special nation to me. It's going to have a special relationship with me. And when people see how you and I interact or how this nation interacts with me, they're going to be drawn. They're going to be drawn to me. That's, that's the goal, Abraham. And so he begins to raise up children for Abraham. Abraham. Then God takes them down to Egypt. I say God takes them down to Egypt and he cocoons them in a way. They become slaves of the Egyptians. And for 400 years, they're living in slavery. But in the land of Goshen, they sort of explode in growth. And by the time they leave 400 years later, and by the way, just for context, we're only about 250 years old as a nation. So they were there for a long time, 400 years. But at the end of 400 years, there's millions of them. God takes them out of Egypt, takes them back to the promised land. And as, as he begins, to develop them into a people or into a nation. They get a king. His name is David. And God says, David is a special man after my heart. And he promises David something that is relevant for us today. He says, David, one of your sons is going to rule the world and he's going to sit on the throne forever. And of course, we believe that, uh, that son of David to be, to be Jesus. That was a promise for Jesus. 14 generations have gone by, or at least Matthew calls them 14 generations from David to where we find ourselves really in, uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the story of Isaiah. And the people of Israel haven't loved God. They haven't followed after God. In fact, they've been extremely rebellious to God. And that's where Isaiah comes in. He's basically been raised up by God to go to the people of Israel and say, guys, have you forgotten what this experiment's all about? Have you forgotten that you're my people? Have you forgotten that you're going you're gonna to love me? I'm going to love you. This is going to be special. Everybody's going to be drawn to us. Have you forgotten that? So Isaiah's really calling the people of Jacob, the people of Israel back, the people of Abraham back to God. So the first theme is God will judge. So in chapter 2, verse 5, Isaiah says, House of Jacob, come and let's walk in the Lord's light, for you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. So the first verse is directed, or the first part of the verse is directed towards the people. Jacob, come, let's, let's walk in God's light. But the second part is a statement about God or to God, where Isaiah says, God has abandoned his people. Now, God has abandoned his people because they have abandoned him. If you were here last week, as chapter 1 starts off, God says, you've rebelled against me. You've forsaken me. You have abandoned me. And so, in, in a sense, God says, my promise to you is conditional. And if you're going to abandon me, then I have abandoned you. But, but you can repent. You can come back. In fact, I want you to come back. So in chapters 2 and 3, um, Isaiah basically says, and in chapter 4, Five, I'm going to judge you. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. So humanity is brought low, and each person is humbled. 
Do not forgive them. This is, that's Isaiah's commentary. Do not forgive them. Go into the rocks and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from his majestic splendor. That little statement, the terror of the Lord and from his majestic splendor, I mean, it, it occurs quite often in this chapter from, uh, from Isaiah. And it's basically talking about God's righteous judgment. The pride, verse 11, the pride of mankind will be humbled and human loftiness will be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For a day belonging to the Lord of armies is coming against all the proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up. It will be humbled. In verse 18, Isaiah continues, the worthless idols of your land will vanish completely. Now the people, Isaiah says, the people will react to when God's judgment comes in this way. And in verse 19, he talks about what will happen when God's judgment comes. People will go into the caves and the rocks and holes in the ground away from the terror of the Lord and from his majestic splendor. There's that statement again. And then he rises, when he rises to terrify the earth. On that day, people will throw their worthless idols of silver and gold, which they have made to worship to the moles and the bats. And they will go into the caves of the rocks and the crevices of the cliffs away from the terror of the Lord and from his majestic splendor. There it is again. When he rises to terrify the earth. Isaiah says, God is coming in judgment against you. And on that day, you're going to go to the cliffs and into the caves and you're going to hide and you're going to throw your worthless idols. You'll see they're nothing. You're going to throw them into the caves and, and you're just going to abandon them. But you're going to hide from God's justice because it's coming. And chapter 3 continues on with this warning of judgment. They will lose all uh, there's means of security, he says in chapter 3. I'm not going to read it, but you can see it. He says you're going to lose your food source. You're going to, your warriors are going to be destroyed. Your religious leadership will be destroyed. Your political leadership will be destroyed. In chapter 3, verse 13, he says, The Lord rises to argue the case and stands to judge the people. The Lord brings this charge against the elders and leaders of his people. You have devastated the vineyard. And not only, not only would it be just the guys and the nation as a whole, but even the women would be judged and they would, and they would fall under, if you would, the judgment of God. So in, in chapter 3, verse 18, he says he's going to strip away all the fineries, the things that the women of that day you know, found important. And he says seven women will want to marry one man because all of their men will be destroyed. And, and seven women will try to find a, uh, one man who would marry them. Isaiah is telling Israel that he's going to judge them unless they repent. When we get to chapter 5, there, there's more of the same. But chapter 5 is like a poem or a parable. Let me read you the first part. Isaiah writes, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my beloved one's vineyard. And he's talking about God there. He's going to sing about God's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it in, with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. Then he asked this question. So now residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What could I have done? This is God speaking. Now, what could I have done for my vineyard that I, that I did? What more could I have done? I'm sorry. Why then I expected uh, a yield of good grapes? Did it yield worthless grapes? And if there's any confusion as to who Isaiah is talking about, he interprets the parable for us in verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice but saw injustice. He expected righteousness but heard cries of despair. 
So in verse 6, if you're following along, look at what he says he'll do to the vineyard in verse 6. And remember, the vineyard is Israel. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rains should not fall on it. And there's more in that context as well as to what he's going to do. In verse 13 of chapter 5, he says, Therefore my people will go into exile because they lack knowledge. Her dignitaries are starving and her masses are parched with thirst. Therefore Sheol enlarges its throat and opens wide its enormous jaws. And down goes Zion's dignitary, her masses, her crowds, and those who celebrate her. In other words, he's saying there's coming a day when when Sheol, meaning the grave or death, is going to open up. Many people will die. Many people will be killed. But the thing I want you to notice, he says, therefore my people will go into exile. So Isaiah's promising them, listen, they're going to come and they're going to take you away. In verse 25, he says, the Lord's anger burned against his people and he raised his hand against them and struck them and the mountains quaked and corpses were like garbage in the street. In all this, his anger was not turned away and his hand still raised and strike to strike. In other words, God says, you know, even though they're going to kill so many of you so that the, the bodies will lie in the street like garbage, he said, that's not enough. That's not enough. Verse 26, he raised a signal flag for the distant nations and whistles for them from the ends of the earth. Now look how swiftly they come. None of them grows weary or stumbles. No one sleeps or slumbers. No belt is loose, no sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharpened and their bows are strung. The horses' hoofs are like flint. Their chariot wheels are like whirlwinds. Their roaring is like a lion's. They roar like young lions. They growl and seize their prey and carry it off. And no one can rescue it. On that day, they'll roar over it. Israel. That's what he means. Like the roaring of the sea. When one looks at the land, there will be darkness and distress. Light will be obscured by clouds. I know you're like, oh my goodness, is this going to go on and on <laughs> all throughout? They say, yes, it does. I promise you, I'm not going to do it every week though. But, but here's, here's the point that I want you to get. I mean, Isaiah is speaking for God and he's saying to his people, the nation that God formed, he says, guys, I'm about to destroy you. I'm going to exile you. The nations are just, they're waiting for me to blow the whistle and they're going to come and they're going to have their arrows are sharp. Their bows will be strong. Their chariots are mighty. And and it's going to seem so devastating when it happens. And Isaiah, now remember, Isaiah is constantly calling them to repentance. You know, I, I believe this. Had they repented, this would not have come to pass. Had they turned back to God, this would not have come to pass. But this is what's coming to pass if they do not repent and they don't repent. Now, if I could, before I go to the next theme, let me just make a couple of comments on this. Um, We like to portray God as a loving, doting grandfather, don't we? And I honestly believe that God values us portraying him as a father. That's how he describes himself. But we prefer grandfather to father. You know why? Because I'm not looking forward to spanking Wit or Gideon or Charlie. In fact, I'm probably not going to do it. I'm probably, I'm going to try to discipline, but I'm not going to spank them. I'm going to take them back to mom and dad. So here they are. You know, they need the spanking spoon or whatever it is. Um, So we prefer to see God as a granddaddy, like a doting granddaddy. And I think the reason is, is because granddads don't usually discipline. They don't usually judge. They leave that to the parents. But the Bible says that God is not just a father, but that he's a judge. In fact, he's the ultimate and final judge. Here's Psalm 9, verse 7. The Lord sits enthroned forever. 
He has established his throne for judgment. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with equity. Psalm 50 says, And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is a judge. Selah. Paul said to Timothy, I solemnly charge you before God and Messiah Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing and his kingdom. Peter said, We will all give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. The Bible, I mean, you do a concordance search, you know, look up the word judge and see how many times the scripture calls God our judge. But we don't want to be, we don't want God to be a judge. Why does he have to judge, right? Why does he have to be a judge? And what we really mean by that is this. Why does he have to judge me? I want him to judge all the other bad people, right? I don't want him to judge me. Or if, if, if he is going to be a judge, I want him to judge what I think needs judging, not what he necessarily says needs judging. I want him to judge what I want him uh, to judge. Now listen to me. I want to tell you why we need, I want to give you two reasons why we need God to be a judge. He is a judge, but I want to tell you why you want him to be a judge at the end. Here's number one reason. Because we need someone to make right the wrongs of this world at the end. Don't you agree? I mean, God says, leave it to me. I'm going to judge. Vengeance is mine. Let me, let me take care of it. But we need someone to judge the wrongs of this world. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be just terrible to think that there's no one at the end to make right all the wrongs that have taken place in this world? So how does he do that? That's his business, but he will. He's going to judge all things at the end. And we need someone to be there at the end. We need God to be there. And I'm not saying fabricate him so that he'll be there. I'm saying he is there. We need him to be there because he's promised he's going to judge all the injustices of this world. And his judgment will be right. But another reason we need him to be judged is because if there is no judge at the end, there's no right or wrong. If there is no judge at the end, everyone, there is no right or wrong. Follow what I mean by this. If there is no one to judge, then, you know, um, murder or rape or any socio, what is it, what is it called, sociopathic behavior, it's no worse than, or no better than going to the grocery store or, you know, caring for your elderly relative or doing something nice for your neighbor. I mean, there's no difference because there is Nothing. I mean, we say, well, there is a difference, but the, the, we say there's a difference because we believe there's a judge who's told us what's right and wrong. But if there is no judge at the end to tell us what's right and wrong, then at the end, beloved, there is no right or wrong. So whatever you do, it doesn't matter. It's just a thing you do. There is no right or wrong without a judge. That's why we need a judge. And Isaiah's theme is there is a God, there is a judge and he's God. And Israel, listen to me. He is poised to judge you, and it's going to be pretty severe. You're going to be exiled out of the land. Many of you are going to die. Your leadership's going to be removed. It's going to be a really rough day. But there's a second theme here as well. And remember, it's theme one, and then it's theme two, and it's theme one, and it's, and it's well, actually, yeah, I, did, I, I took theme two first. I'm sorry, I messed up. I meant to tell you that. I went with the second theme. It's theme one, theme two, theme one, theme two. I took the second theme first, judgment. But there is a theme prior to the judgment in chapter two and in chapter four. And that theme is this. God will bless his people. And it's kind of neat that he starts there, I think. It's, it's, it's actually really awesome that he starts there. I'm going to judge, but I'm also going to bless my people. 
So look at chapter 2, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us about his ways so that we may walk in his paths. For instructions will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives, and nation will not take up sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. And he starts off in verse 2, he says, in these last days, and that could mean the time of Jesus. Some people believe that this is a picture of when Jesus comes into the world, and he, he's going to be teaching out of Mount Zion. He's going to be teaching out of Jerusalem in the temple, the ways of God. So, you know, Peter says we're in the last days. We like to say we've been in the last days since then. So some people think that, that this is talking about when Jesus came. Do you remember in Daniel chapter 2, the vision that, that Nebuchadnezzar had about the, all the, the, the big statue, and then a stone was was taken off the mountain, rolled down the hill, destroyed the statue, and then became a mountain that filled the earth. Well, I'm, I'm pretty convinced and pretty sure, without little disagreement, that the stone that came off the mountain that rolled down and destroyed all the other kingdoms was the kingdom of God. And the mountain that filled the earth is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is and has filled the earth. We, we follow Jesus from all four corners of the, of the globe now, right? So this, it's filling the earth. So some people say this is talking about that. In the last days when Jesus comes, verse 2, I'm, I'm reading this perspective in. The mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will, will be raised up above the hills. Talking about the coming kingdom when Jesus inaugurated it and is coming. But I don't think so. I think the last days here is not even talking. I think the last days here is talking about the kingdom of God when it comes. I'm not talking about the last days before Jesus comes. I'm talking about, I think when he says in the last days, the, mount, the, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established. I think he's talking about when Jesus establishes his kingdom here on earth once and for all and reigns over all. And uh, but regardless whether you think it's the coming of the kingdom in Jesus' day or the coming when Jesus comes again, here's what I want you to note. Here's what, here's what Isaiah says to them. This kingdom of God's going to fill the earth, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths, and there will be war no more. There'll be no more war. Isaiah goes back to this theme in chapter 4. So chapter 2 begins, hey, the kingdom of God is coming chapter 2 continues, yep, but judgment is coming. Chapter 4 is, yep, the kingdom of God is coming. But chapter 5, yep, but judgment's coming first. So here's chapter 4. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of Israel's survivors. Whoever remains in Zion, whoever is left in Jerusalem will be called holy, all in Jerusalem written in the book of life. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the blood guilt from the heart of Jerusalem by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create a cloud of smoke by day and a glowing flame of fire by night over the entire site of Mount Zion and over its assemblies. For there will be a canopy over over all the glory, and there will be shelter for the shade from the heat of day and refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. Again, this is a picture of the coming kingdom that God is going to establish. I think it's talking about 
the kingdom of God established at the return of Jesus. Uh, I guess, you know, we could say, well, this is talking about the return from exile, but it has to be bigger than that because look at what's promised. The branch of the Lord, that's talking about the kingdom of God, right? It'll be beautiful and it'll be glorious. We will be holy in the kingdom, set apart. Our names will be in the book of life. We will have, he will have washed us clean. And then his presence will be with us in the smoke and fire. I think that's looking to the revelation in chapter 21 where it says, we won't have any need of light, I mean, uh, of the sun that day because God will be present with us always, never to leave us. I think that's what it's pointing us to. And he will protect us. And I think that's talking about the eternal life that he's given us. Jesus came to give us abundant life now. And, and I, need to, I need to remind myself of that because I've become so fixed on the coming kingdom of God that I forget that Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it when? Now, right? Not just in the kingdom to come, but now. So Jesus has come to give us abundant life, everyone. He's come to make, he's come to give you joy in your existence now. He's come to give you peace. He's come to give you himself now, right? But man, we must not lose sight of what is coming. And what is coming is Jesus rules over all the earth and all will be made right and everything will be fixed and the paradise of God and the Jerusalem of God will come and God will make his dwelling on earth never to leave us again. And we won't be ruled by any tyrant anymore. We won't be ruled by any, any wicked or evil person anymore in any country. Jesus will rule over all the earth. And that's what Isaiah is promising them. And as you see, as we go through the book of Isaiah, you'll see more and more promises to, uh, to this end. So what's the application for us? Well, number one, there'd be this great reminder that God's going to judge. Don't ever forget that. God sits at the end and he will judge the living and the, and the dead. He will judge all of us. All right? So don't forget that. That's a great application. And, and the other application I would say is from, from the first theme is that we can repent and by faith have the kingdom of God. We can be a part of it. We get to be a part of the kingdom. But I wasn't happy with just that application. I thought, God, there's, there, needs, there has to be more for us today and I felt like the Lord showed me a way to take what he said to them and apply it to our life. And this is, this is, what, this is the thought I had that, that's going to be this next part of my talk this morning. Why did God judge them? What was, what was the sin that provoked God to such a drastic earthly judgment at that time? What was it that they did? And so I took out a notepad and I went from chapter two through chapter five and I wrote down everything that God said they did that was sin, that was displeasing to him. And I came up with a really long list. Um, but I, I picked five of the things that he said to them. These things are the reason why I'm going to judge you. Remember, this is directed to God's people and we're God's people. We're God's, the church. Those of us who follow Jesus, we're the new temple of God. We're the new people of God. And so the things that he said to his people then would apply to us today. So I want to highlight five of the things that he said to them that greatly distressed him. 
And I really want to challenge you and me as we walk in the light of Jesus that, that we would guard our own hearts from these five things. There's more. The list was a lot longer. But here's the five that I felt like I wanted to share with you today that I feel like they, they have application in our hearts or they can. The first one was this. He said, you have rejected God's wisdom and you're looking for truth in other places. This is one of the things that caused God to distress, to be distressed by them, caused God to judge them. Chapter 2, verse 6. He says, because you are full of divination from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, you are in league with foreigners. God said he had this against the house of Israel. They sought wisdom from the occult, fortune tellers, and spiritual divination. And they had gone and made allegiances with foreigners. Now, they could have been political, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume for this purposes, we're talking about they've gone in leagues with foreigners to determine where truth comes from. Now, I doubt any of you in this room are seeking truth from, from soothsayers or fortune tellers. At least I, I would really hope not. But you know what? It is really easy for us as followers of Jesus to get our truth, our wisdom from other places other than God. And, uh, and namely, the Bible is the place where we're to get the word of God. The Bible, I mean, get the truth of God. The word of God is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. And, uh, and we need to choose it for the wisdom of God. But you know what we tend to, what we, we, it is possible for us to do? It is possible for us to find our wisdom from the wisdom of the age. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. This is New Testament. This is to us. Paul said, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. And I think he's talking specifically about the church, and I think he's talking about uh, Gentiles and Jews being the people of God. But, but the the application, I think, is just as real. He says there's a wisdom that comes from God, and there's a wisdom of the age. There's a wisdom of, of the time in which we live. What, what is the wisdom of our age? Well, it's, it's the, what the culture says is true. It's what culture says is right. And so in our day, the wisdom of the age is naturalistic evolution. It's, it's the sexual revolution. It's gender dysphoria. It's abortion as health care. It's divorce as an easy out. And lots of other things like that. In Isaiah's day, they are buying into the wisdom of foreigners rather than the wisdom of God. And God says, for that reason, I'm going to judge you. Isaiah said they flaunted their disregard for God's truth and sin. In verse, chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Woe to those who drag iniquity with cords of, cords of deceit and pull sin along with cart ropes. In verse 20, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweeter for, uh, sweet for bitter. Woe to those who consider themselves wise and judge themselves clever. Folks, listen, we live in a day in which our churches, God's church, is embracing the wisdom of the age. And they're saying things like abortion is good when God calls it murder. Or they say homosexuality and transgenderism are good when God calls them. I'm not talking about our culture. I'm not talking about our American culture or our European Western civ. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the church. 
We, we have the church in so many places embracing the wisdom of the age. And they're the ones that are saying abor- abortion is health care when God calls it murder. Or homosexuality and transgenderism are good when God calls them sin. Or that divorce is good when God says, it's not my intention nor my will. This week in The Economist, Catherine Nixie, I got this from Dr. Moeller, but I wanted to share it with you. In an article that uh, he, he considered, I went and read the article, it's the Church of England, just the title by Nixie's article in The Economist, it says, the Church of England's God is becoming more liberal. Read the title again, the Church of England's God is becoming more liberal. And here's, here's her opening, some of her opening remarks. Smiting used to be so simple. God smote the people and they trembled. And they sometimes died. He smote the rebellious Israelites, 10,000 died. The firstborn Egyptians, they all died. The Philistines, they got hemorrhoids. The Sodomites suffered and particularly striking smiting. Uh, few in Britain celebrate a smighty almighty today. God, as the Archbishop of Canterbury put it recently, is love. And uh, now, now fewer celebrate a homophobic God. In June 2021, Methodists voted after prayerful consideration to allow same-sex marriage. In September, the Church of Wales voted to allow blessings for same-sex relationships. In 2022, the, King, the Church of England uh, will consider similar questions. The signs are promising. Uh, as, a, uh, as a recent Church of England memo put it in a tone not easily confused with that of Leviticus, together we stand against homophobia. The evidence is clear. God is becoming more liberal. No, God's not becoming more liberal. God's not changing. God's not changing. What's changing is we in the church are rapidly embracing the wisdom of our age as opposed to the wisdom of God, like, they, like, like in Isaiah's day. We're rapidly running towards them. And so there's a question for you individually, and there's a question for all of us as a church family. You know, where are we going to get our wisdom from? Are we going to be in, in wisdom? Are we going to be in league with the wisdom of our day and of our culture? Or are we going to stand on the wisdom of God? Again, listen, I, I'm not suggesting that we stand in some sort of uh, pontificating or prideful way. I'm not saying that we're the guy that stands there and prays, God, thank God I'm not like our culture over here. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. We're the guys who beat our chest and God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But we also stand with God's truth. But that's the first, one of the first, that's first on my list of things that I want to share with you. I got five of them. Here's the second one. They put their trust in money and military. If you look at verse 7 of chapter 2, their land is full of silver and gold, and there is no limit to their treasures. Their land is full of horses, and there is no limit to their chariots. Now, the implication, I believe, in that statement by God is he's not condemning them for being rich. He's not condemning them for having lots of chariots. He's condemning them because they are putting their trust in those things rather than in God. And they're looking for their security to be in their military, and they're looking for their security to be in their money. They have lots of money, no limits. They have a strong military. The chariots and horses there, that's not your, that's not your local carriage, right? That's not, your, that's not your car. That's not your Uber, right? That, that, is a, a mach- the, that chariot with a horse, that's a military machine. They're, they're, they have lots of military machines. 
In chapter 3, I think God makes it clear. In chapter 3, verse 1, God says this to them. Note this, the Lord God of armies is about to remove from Jerusalem and from Judah every kind of security, the entire supply of bread and water. They're about to lose their food chain. Heroes and warriors, they're about to lose all their military men. Judges and prophets, they're about to, they're about to lose their religious leadership. Fortune tellers and elders, I don't know what he means by fortune tellers. Commanders of 50 and dignitaries. I think that would be the, the military. Counselors, cunning magicians, and necromancers. You're about to lose them all. God's going to remove every bit of security from, from you. Imagine, imagine us living in the United States, and all of a sudden, there is no proper working infrastructure. There is no food chain. There is no police force. There is none of that. Imagine what that would do to us as a society. And God says to them, because you've put your trust in those things, I am about to remove all of those things from from you. Now, I don't think that God is saying that those are bad things. I don't think he's saying being rich is bad or having a strong military uh, and your, for them would have been bad. I don't think he's saying they're bad. What he's saying is it's a sin to put your trust in those things rather than looking to me for, to be the, the, the one you put your trust in, the one you look to to take care of you. And Jesus was extremely hard on the rich. Remember this? He, he said it's really hard for them to get into the kingdom of God. And uh, the reason why it was hard for the rich to get into the kingdom of God was because they didn't trust in God. They didn't, they didn't need God anymore. They had everything they wanted at their fingertips. And so they abandoned God. And he says, it's really hard when you're rich to get into the kingdom of God because you don't see your need of God. It's not rich. It's not a sin to be rich, but it's dangerous. And here's the thing I want to say to all of us today in the church, not talking to you as Americans. I'm talking to you and me as followers of Jesus. It's really dangerous for us to be rich because we will have a tendency to forget God and put our trust in our bank accounts and all those kind of things that meet our needs. So, so Paul said to the rich, he said it to Timothy to tell the rich, 1 Timothy 6, 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world. He doesn't say get rid of your riches. He says not to be conceited or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Paul says to Timothy, warn the rich, let them not confuse the gift and the giver. Make sure that their confidence is in the giver, not what they have in their bank accounts. Now as for a military, we don't even have a military. We don't have a military. Jesus said, if my kingdom was of this world, I'd I'd create a military and they'd fight for me. But we don't have a military. Now, we as Americans have a military, but not we as Christians. We don't have a military. And uh, so, you know, be careful not to trust in the military of your country. You know, trust in God. Put your confidence in him, not in the powers of this world. Number three, they worship things they created. Verse eight. Their land is full of worthless idols. They worship the work of their hands, what their fingers have made. We've been reading First and Second Kings on, on Tuesday morning in our men's breakfast. And one of the things that's really clear as we've read through the kings of Israel is that it was really hard for the people just to worship God. I mean, they just, they had to have something that they touched, so they felt, they, they created high places and shrines where they put their little trinkets that they made and worshipped, worshipped them. They were very syncretistic. 
They worshiped God, but they also worshiped all the gods of the age that were present there, all their, all their neighboring gods. They worshiped those things that they made. One of the first commandments that Jesus, I mean, that God gave us was that we're only to worship God, not to worship anything else, no, nothing that you make with your hands and all. And Isaiah puts a commentary in verse 9. Remember this commentary? I pointed it out as I read through it. Don't forgive them for this. Wow. Don't forget them. Don't forgive them. Now, just like I said a minute ago, I don't think any of you guys are getting your wisdom from fortune tellers and, and soothsayers and, and diviners through divination. At least I hope you're not. Um, neither, do I think you, neither do I think you make little trinkets and make, make, make elaborate trinkets. Or whatever. I don't think you worship that sort of thing that you create and call it an idol and say, I'm going to worship you, you're my God. I don't think any of us do that. But I do think it's really possible for us as believers today in 2022, I think it's possible for us to create things that we worship alongside God or maybe even worship more than we worship God. And I'm talking about we create things, we, we wouldn't call them God, but we treat them as idols. Um, maybe your business. It could be your business. It could be, could be your bank account. It could be a relationship. It could be, man, you know, what, what I mean, isn't it, isn't it limitless? The things that you could put alongside and, 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 and raise up above God and worship more than God, prioritize more than God in your life. Things that, that you've made, things that you've had a, a hand in. I had somebody one time tell me uh, almost, I mean, just with such pride, Look what I've done. It was talking about their business. Look what I've done. It was kind of scary, actually. You know, it kind of reminded me of Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament. You know, look what I've done. And God said, yeah, well, I'm going to make you be like a cow for a while. So um, I think here's the, here's the thing I want to warn us about. Man, let's be conscious of all the good things in our life, but let's be really careful not to elevate them to a place of worship in our life. Let's not put those things ahead of the Lord. It's, it's, it's hard to, I mean, I tell you, I, I recognize it's hard not to do sometimes to put those things in that position. Number four, their greed and materialism were insatiable. This is why God says, I'm going to judge Israel because of their greed and their materialism. So I didn't write the verse down. I don't remember where it is. I think it's in chapter five. It is in chapter five, maybe around verse seven or eight. But he says, woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room and you alone are left in the land. And here's what he's talking about. He's talking about the rich buying up and buying up and acquiring more and more until they basically isolate them from everybody else. You say, man, is God really against being rich? No, it's not wrong to be rich. It's wrong. It's, it's a sin what we do with our riches. And again, I really want to say to us, and, and I think there's no fear of contradiction, but you guys will, most of you will, will push back on this and say it's not true. We are the rich. We are so rich compared to where these rich were in those days. Now, we, not, we may not be the riches of the rich in our culture and in the world today, but we are rich. We have so much. And, and here he says, be careful not to just be, key, just be accumulating things to yourself and, and, and not being conscious of other people around you. And that's what we do. We buy bigger and better homes and we try to, we buy all the land around us to isolate us and that sort of thing. And he says, I don't be like that. 
So in that chapter, uh, I mean, in that instruction that Paul gave to Timothy, where he said to the rich people, he said, listen, he doesn't say get rid of your riches. What he says is be careful that you don't worship your riches over God. He, he warns them. But here's how he follows it up. Instruct, this is 1 Timothy 6.18. Instruct the rich to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for yourselves the treasure uh, of a good foundation for the future so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, I'm going to make a statement. It's not biblical. I, I believe it's true. I think capitalism is the best economic system that elevates most people in the world. It helps elevate everyone, capitalism does. So I would say it's probably the best economic system out there, but that would be an amoral statement. That's just my judgment on that. But, but capitalism doesn't mean that I just can get and get and get and just get bigger and bigger bank accounts and save and save and buy and buy. That's not, that's not what I'm to do with, hey, if I'm a capitalist or whatever, that's not what I'm to do with my capital. What I'm to do with my capital that God says is, man, I'm to be generous. I'm to care for people. I'm to use my wealth to provide for others. I'm to lift others up with my wealth. That's what I'm to do. And his, his point against Israel was, you guys just keep accumulating more and more. You rich get richer and richer and richer. And you don't use your riches to elevate others. He's not condemning them for being rich. He's condemning them because they're not using their riches and generosity. Luke 6, 38, give and it will be given. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. Give and it will be given to you. They'll pour into your lap good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measure, it'll be measured to you in return. Man, that's God's economic system. Be generous and I'm going to take care of your needs and provide for you to be even more generous. We should be, as the people of God, the most generous people in the world. We should be known for our giving. We should be known for our generosity. And I realize there's not enough time, all the, the nuances and caveats and you're saying in your mind, but what about this and what about that? I'm just simply telling you, be generous. Use your, use your capital. Use your gifts. Use your abilities to bless others. And that brings me to the last one. And the last thing that I, of, the, of, the, of the great list that I have accumulated or I put together, I chose five. And this is the last one I chose. They didn't care about the poor. Chapter 5, verse 7. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. If I could, you know, if I'm doing damage to the text, you know, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to. But I've looked at that verse a lot this week. And let me tell you what I think, how we should read it. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair from the poor. So I think that should be read. When God speaks of his desire for justice and his hate of injustice, he speaks of hating things like briberies, listening to lies, but one of the things that's just over and over and over, and it's going to be over and over again in Isaiah's book, and all the prophets actually, is that there is injustice when we don't take care of the poor, when we don't help elevate the poor. He calls that injustice. And you cannot read your Bible, everyone. You cannot read your Bible and pretend it's not there or ignore it. We cannot ignore it. And again, 
Like I said last week, I, I am, I'm not telling you this, like, okay, look at how Ann and I do this. You know, I mean, Ann's, Ann's the generous one, more so than me. She's the one that wants to give and give and give. But, but listen, the poor break the heart of God. And, and he's telling Israel, now granted, they're the people of God, the whole nation. They should be taking care of their, of their poor. We should be taking care of the poor in the body of Christ for sure. But I think we should be taking care of poor everywhere. Chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord brings this charge against the elders and the leaders of the people. You have devastated the vineyard. Now listen to what he goes on to say. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. Why do you crush my people and grind the faces of the poor? This is the declaration of the Lord God of armies. Now we could say, well, he's just talking about the, 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 his poor, God's people's poor, right? We need to really take care of God's people poor. And I think we do need to take care of everybody who's God's people and, and they're crushed under their poverty. We should do everything we can with our riches to help elevate and lift up others. But, but I, I think God just has a heart for the poor regardless of whether they're in his kingdom or not. I think he has a heart for the poor. I agree that in the statements I'm going to read you, Jesus isn't universalizing these statements. They're, they're not, they weren't directed at you and me, so I'm not directing them at you necessarily, but I'm, I'm, I'm reading them because I want us to at least consider you know, Jesus. So this, this guy comes who's really wealthy, and, and he says, I want to follow you. And you remember what Jesus said to him? He says, go give everything you have to the poor and then come and follow me. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to say that he's telling us that, telling every one of us that. He was telling this guy that because his confidence was in his riches, right? So, hey, get rid of your riches and come and follow me. Put, put me ahead of your, of your money. When Zacchaeus met Jesus in the afternoon, Regardless of, regardless of what happened in the, in the conversation over lunch, we don't know. But here's what, here's what Zacchaeus does. He walks out of the room, and the first thing he says is, I'm going to give half of my wealth to the poor. And the people that I've defrauded, I'm going I'm to pay them back four times what I overcharged them in taxes. But I just, don't you find it interesting that Zacchaeus walks out, and his first response to meeting Jesus is, man, I'm giving half of my stuff away to the poor. Let's face it, everyone, loving Jesus has a great deal to do with loving the poor. And so I chose these five because I, th I thought if there's, if there's five things that maybe we struggle with as the people of God today, these five might, might, touch, on, might touch on our hearts. So I'm done. What would God say to you personally if you and him had lunch today? You and him go to lunch. You and Jesus get to sit down. One day, by the way, I think we'll all get to sit down over lunch with Jesus, face to face, person to person. In my flesh, as Job said, I shall see my Redeemer, and I believe that. But if you could go to lunch with Jesus, and he was talking to you about these five things, these five sins that led to the judgment of Israel, his people, how, and again, this is a rhetorical question, but how would you do? What would he say to you? Would there be any of these five things that he would say, Jimmy, you really, you need to reexamine that one. You need to really work on that one.
need to really focus on that one. What do you say to any of you, if you would? What about us as a family? If, if Jesus took the pulpit, what, what, would he, what would he talk to us about, about these things? Those are things for us to consider. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.